There is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. This is Pints with Jack. Season 5, Episode 25. The Four Loves, Chapter 6. Charity, Part 1. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favourite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through The Four Loves, the book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance and charity. Well, gentlemen, here we are. We're starting the final chapter of The Four Loves. How are you both doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm about to leave uh, tomorrow to go to my in-laws' 50th wedding anniversary. So we're looking forward to some fun there. And uh, it's a bishopy month. I'm taking a class with an Episcopal bishop on medieval mystics. Uh, the former presiding bishop is on campus tomorrow night, and I was invited to dinner with him, Bishop Frank Griswold, but, um, but we'll be on a plane. And then Archbishop Justin Welby from England will be here at the end of the month and uh, been invited to dinner with him as well. So it's it's bishopy. Well, if you ever need to avoid them, just remember, they can only move diagonally. (laughs) (laughs) David, that was top five of the entire time. (laughs) That's right up there with like, Matt, don't you only speak Greek or something? Yeah. Or isn't everything Greek to you? (laughs) Oh, great. Well, how have you been, Matt? Well, I leave also uh, Friday for a wedding in Tampa, Florida, and I could not be more excited. It's one of the last college friends to get married, which thus means it will be a massive reunion of all of my closest friends. So I cannot wait for that. And obviously the sunny weather be nice. But more importantly, David's relentless, no shame pursuit of Sister Miriam James has most likely come to a positive conclusion. She, I've already talked twice, guys, about her, the book Loved As I Am. It's been incredibly transformational. And she has agreed to come onto the podcast. So, barring any sort of falling through the cracks, we should be getting this scheduled, and I couldn't be more excited for this. She's just absolutely incredible. And let this be a warning to anybody else who is even thinking about not coming on our show when I really want them to come on our show. <laughs> I will win. <laughs> David, there's like uh, Batesian rigidity and Batesian persistence. Like I'm not, I, they're, they're both one and the same thing. <laughs> well, I... Uh... I love that. Um, Speaking of sisters, I just ordered from the Our Lady of the Mississippi Abbey in Iowa uh, a few of their handmade candies, but it's also one of the sisters there who did that marvelous print of Mary and Eve, uh, Mary consoling Eve. Mm -hmm. Mm. So I bought a frame for that and then just ordered the print and ordered some chocolate hazelnut meltaways and some vanilla caramels as well. Send me a link to that. 
Andrew. I'd love to see that. Absolutely. And David, I got to say. send me the candies. <laughs> Keep holding your breath for that, boys. <laughs> David, I, I when you forwarded me the email to connect me with her, I saw your original email and clicked on, because David put in the email, Matt was raving about you on an episode. And so he put a link in, strategically to the exact spot of the YouTube video where I'm raving about her. Smart idea. But then when I he pulled it up, I'm like, why didn't he use the most recent one? Because in the first one, I made a joke that our Pints podcast was better than Pints with Aquinas. And I was a little mortified to hear that because she's very, very close friends with uh, Matt Fratt. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't make its way back to him. Yeah. You're doing the interview. Let's keep you on your toes. <laughs> it keeps me humble. I'm never going to make that comment again. David, what about you? Well... I don't really have any personal updates, but I do have a few bits and pieces related to the podcast. Uh, well, I suppose the first one is personal. Um, I just received in the mail my copy of The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's by Jason Baxter. So I'm really looking forward to getting myself a nice cup of tea, sitting on the couch and reading that this weekend. Oh, I wonder if that'll be related to uh, the gentleman that I Chris Armstrong's? Yeah, Chris Armstrong. At least. I mean, mm-hmm. a little bit different, but still that medieval period of Lewis. Yeah, I, I think it, it's exploring similar sorts of, of material, but just from a slightly different angle. Uh, and uh, what else? Oh, yeah, uh, since we're nearing the end of The Four Loves now, I can't believe we're nearly there. Mm. Uh, I've begun all of the interviews for our various speciality months, which we're going to be having in the latter portion of this season. So that's the Apologetics Month, where we're going to be speaking to different apologists about Lewis's favorite apologetic arguments. I'm excited for that one. And also Poetry Month, where we'll be looking at Lewis's often overlooked poetry. I'm not as excited for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Although you like the... What did you think of the, the poem that, that I read before we started, Matt? It didn't rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for my not love of poetry, I enjoyed it. So that means it was above and beyond the normal ones. But uh, whatever Matt cons- might consider a normal poem remains to be seen. <laughs> and to be fair, all he's had is my haikus thus far. Yeah, okay. You know, that's, well, that's full circle. That's the problem here. My only exposure to poetry is David Bates. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I think that you're, you're in for a treat once you open your mind. So, Well, let's, uh, let's move on. What's everyone drinking today? I've got another one that I picked up when I was in Oxford, although this one is a very known brand, Oban 14. So I'm very excited for this. I I clearly kept the good ones for myself and then dished off all the dirt ones to you guys. Oh, don't worry. Everyone worked that out. (laughs) (laughs) Immediately. Um, uh, I'm drinking a cucumber, metal, and sparkling water. Um, but I also decided, since I saw you were both drinking scotch, I wasn't going to, but uh, what the heck. I am, got this Welsh, Welsh scotch from Matt, um, the Pendarin. So it could be bilge water, but uh, we shall see. It's the Sherrywood cask. And um, how old is it? It says it's, uh, it's at least seven and a half months old. <laughs> no. All I want to make sure is you don't, make, you don't mistake the scotch for the divine. Uh, oh, tenuous yeah. link, but nice try. <laughs> <laughs> tenuous. It's just a nice excuse to uh, explain why what he's basically giving you to drink is what they use to wash the sheep in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> I did appreciate the two seconds of just pure crickets. Like, yeah, that one did not land. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I am drinking an inch Marin again. Andrew and I drank the 18-year-old version in the last part of Chapter 5, and so I'm now drinking the 12-year version. Well, our toast is for Joanna Marsh today. Joanna, we raise our glasses praying for God's health and blessing and a surprising sense, not only of joy, but of his surrounding love for you. Cheers. 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 Is this the Joanna that we will be having a conversation with in two weeks? I'm not sure. You were the one that organized it. <laughs> <laughs> it just said Joanna and her husband's name. So I'm assuming this is. So Joanna, we are looking very much forward to our FaceTime. How's your scotch, boys? Mm, the 18 year was better. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this is all right. My Oban is pretty good. And so another instance in which, which Matt's enjoying the better scotch. Yeah, I should have said, oh, this is dirt. I mean, this is dirt. (laughs) This is drudge water. We should should, uh, start a a Patreon category to buy better scotch for next year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, while you're sipping, here's a summary of the first five chapters now, five of six, of The Four Loves. In chapter one, Lewis introduced some terminology, as well as his maxim about how loves become corrupted when they are elevated too high. In chapter two, we saw this corruption process with regards to the love of nature and the love of country. And after this, we began looking at the four loves mentioned in the book's title. In chapter three, we looked at affection or stalky, the love of family and the familiar. And in chapter four, we looked at friendship or philia, the humble, uninquisitive love which fortifies us against the rest of the world. And then last month, we looked at romantic love or eros in chapter five. And in this chapter, Lewis distinguished Eros from its carnal element, which he called Venus. And Lewis argued that a wrong kind of seriousness has developed around Venus, and warns us that doing so will cause Venus herself to take revenge upon us. Instead, we need to embrace St. Francis' description of the body as Brother Ass. In chapter 5, he also discussed the two crowns of romance, the tinsel paper crown of the natural pagan sacrament, and the crown of thorns of Christian matrimony. And then last week, we saw that since Eros doesn't make happiness its supreme goal, it can enable us to sacrifice for the beloved and endure much and shows us illustrating uh, what Christian charity should look like. However, Lewis ended by warning us that because Eros can speak with a godlike authority, we must be guarded by virtue, since Eros can urge us to evil as well as to good. That's five chapters. Well done. (laughs) Oh, um, Andrew, you're muted. And that's what I think of both of you. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I'd add is uh, let's keep in mind um, that pagan doesn't mean hedonist. Uh, Pagan means believing in multiple gods. And Lewis considered himself, perhaps jokingly, but with some seriousness, I think, a converted pagan in a land of apostate Puritans, which means that he enjoyed mythology and he enjoyed the ideas of the gods. And so, and the gods, as Michael Ward has pointed out in Planet Narnia, the gods really serve a wonderful purpose as long as they submit to Christ. Um, If they don't, they, of course, become dangerous. And so, Paganism is not the enemy of Christianity, but in many ways a precursor or a distraction from. Uh, There's a a famous Norse myth when Christianity came to Iceland in about 1000 AD. 
there were some writers who were talking about this kind of um, uh, cage match between Thor and Christ and who would win in a fight between Thor and Christ. Um, so these are these gods who finally are able to subsist or subside or take their proper place once they are in part of the divine economy. So let's begin chapter six. Here's my 100 word summary for the first part we're going to look at today. The natural loves are not self-sufficient, but require Christian virtue, much in the same way that a garden requires gardening. The natural loves can be rivals to the love of God. Jack says he's avoided this question until now because A, he doesn't think it's where most of us need to begin, and B, it's not necessarily needed in order to see the limits of the natural loves. Lewis says that St. Augustine taught that it was best to only love God, as he was the only sure foundation. But Lewis rejects this, calling us not to love less, but to love rightly. And with that, let's start chapter 6. Lewis begins by telling a story which Andrew alluded to, actually, at the end of the Eros chapter. William Morris, he writes his poem called Love is Enough, and some snarky critic reviewed it by saying it isn't. And, and this is the point that Lewis has really been trying to make throughout this book. It's I mean, the thing that Matt has come back to almost every time when we've been talking about the summaries, namely that the natural loves are not self-sufficient. And of course, this begs the question, if they're not self-sufficient, what else is needed? And Lewis gives the answer by saying that it was at first vaguely described as decency and common sense, but later revealed as goodness, and finally as the whole Christian life in one particular relation. And while this might sound like he's denigrating the natural loves, Lewis doesn't think so, and he explains using the analogy of the garden. But before we get to the analogy of the garden, what does he mean when he says the whole Christian life in one particular relation? What's that relation? I'll first start by saying every single book, and you've already somewhat alluded to this, but just to reiterate it because I just think it's so important. Every single book, I always try to find like, what's the one thing that's, it's not even what's the central theme of it's more like, what am I getting most out of this? Now, a lot of times that tends to overlap with the central theme because that's what he's hitting home so much. And this to me was what that was. You know, the natural loves without the divine loves are in trouble. And so I've been asking this whole time and been wondering, which I'm excited for us to have a conversation here. Okay, I get that the natural loves need divine loves, but what does that look like? Okay, we might buy that premise and I do buy that premise. And of course I do and I'm all in on it. But what does that look like on a daily basis? And how do we get into that? And so I think this now to answer your specific question, I think this gets into part of it. And then when we're going to move on to the garden analogy, we'll get into the second part of it and bring it full circle. But I thought of the Christian life in one relation. I went back to mere Christianity, the Trinitarian dance, you know, that pulsating life force that we partake in. I thought of the divine life. I thought of communion with God. I thought of the fountain in the great divorce. Like you are so all consumed in communion and relation with the Trinitarian love that you get called up into that dynamic and it permeates through you. And when it does, your natural loves are somewhat saved from themselves. And then the one other thing I'll say is here, the decency and common sense, the goodness, I thought, David, of your comment uh, that you've mentioned before, virtue. So almost those going hand in hand, the divine life and grace plus virtue. Hmm. I love what you said, Matt. Uh, it um, makes me think about some of my studies, both 
this week and this last semester, I took a class on Nicaea and the councils, Ooh, nice. councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon and the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. And one of the things that we have been discussing, especially this week in one of my classes, is the economic Trinity versus the imminent Trinity. Trinity. Now, these are very technical theological terms, and you know, I don't do much philosophy, but it makes great sense. The imminent Trinity is the relationship of the three members of the Trinity for each other, right, or with each other. That um, that the the Son is begotten of the Father, um, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, uh, pace to the whole uh, Eastern world, or. Um, <laughs> Maybe the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, or there's all kinds of arguments. But that the Trinitarian life is this life of love from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. Or the Father is the is the begetter, and the Son is the begotten, and the Holy Spirit is the love between them. Um, but it's this spilling out of love that becomes creation. So the economic Trinity is the way the three members of the Trinity um uh, it's the it's salvation history hmm. that God loved God so much that God overflows God's love overflows into creating and then redeeming and uh, ultimately restoring all of creation and so I think that um, that the whole Christian life is in one particular relation and that relation is the relation that we have to get right it's our relation towards God or the acknowledgement of God's relationship of love towards us. You know, someone once asked me, a denomination that doesn't do this, I think, other, I mean, others outside of Catholicism do, of why I'd start with the Father, name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I always respond whether this is the full true answer. It, draw, it feels like I'm being drawn up into the Trinity. It reminds myself when I'm praying to think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so now, actually, after reading Lewis, I practically have a visual of like myself ascending into this pulsating dance of the Trinity above me. It's just a little bit of a visualization that helps me when I pray. So that's how I personally think about it. I will accept all of these answers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Master David. I did just want to clear that up because it was a slightly odd turn of phrase that is a little hard to parse and you don't get a whole lot of clues about it. But now that we've got that cleared up, uh, Lewis says that what we need is decency and common sense, later revealed as goodness, and finding this whole Christian life in one particular relation. This is what we need in addition to the natural loves. And saying that, oh, you need this as well as that, implies that that other thing isn't quite so great. But he employs a wonderful analogy of a garden to prove his point. Would one of you mind unpacking that? How does he describe it? I absolutely loved this analogy because... I felt the analogy almost could extend to completion. You know how sometimes analogies explain one part of it, but then you have to, to admit that it can't go all of the way. And so the thing that he talks about is the garden, is like the natural loves. And if you don't have the, the fence, if you don't have the weeding and the pruning, so think of the divine love putting it, the garden will very quickly be overrun by thorns, by weeds. It will look like wilderness. The beauty won't be able to draw out of it. Before you know it, you won't even see the garden anymore if you let it go long enough without any work. And when you are tending to it, 
And when you have the fence around it and you keep out the wilderness, the garden can become beautiful. In the same way, the loves, if you leave them untended and unrestrained from divine love, can really bleed into becoming a, a wilderness, more or less. And what I really particularly liked about the analogies extended to, I thought, a really beautiful blend of the human component and the divine component. So David, going to your stuff about virtue before, you know, we, have, we as gardeners have work we need to do in the garden. And we need to be tending to it. But any gardener will tell you their tending wouldn't mean anything if it wasn't for sun, if it wasn't for rain, if it wasn't for good soil. You know, think of those as like the divine graces. And so the gardener can't claim that they're doing this all on their own. In fact, the garden couldn't do the gardener couldn't do any of this without the divine. And so I think the same thing with our loves. We have to be prudent. We have to focus on trying to live a virtuous life. We do need some effort to be put into maintaining the loves, the natural loves, so they become beautiful. But at no point can we claim like it's our doing without the divine graces of our Heavenly Father, without that Trinitarian dance. And so I feel like it extends beautifully to that that blend between our effort and God's grace. Which reminds me of a poem by Shakespeare. <laughs> I can see your face like really excited for the last 30, 45 seconds. <laughs> So Sonnet 94, and I think that Lewis even quotes it somewhere in here. I probably know the book well enough that I keep anticipating these phrases and thinking that they're original and that I'm smart. And it's no, <laughs> it's just me imperfectly remembering the pace of Lewis's brilliance. But Sonnet 94, uh, the last uh, quatrain and the concluding couplet says this, The summer's flower is to the summer sweet, but to itself it only live and die. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. <laughs> so he said a flower that's infected mm -hmm. is not nearly as good and glorious as a weed that is thriving. And so what we need to do is keep our loves from the infection um, and tend to them so that they will, uh, they will take their proper place. So um, as, a, as a British schoolboy, David, I'm sure that you, uh, you read your share of Shakespeare. I saw your face light up when I... Did you know this one? I did know this one. And actually, I was having a conversation with Marie just the other night as I was talking about the book that I'm about to write. And one of my potential titles is Lilies That Fester. Mm. David, did you just say you're writing a book? Yes. Yeah. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is oh, like yeah. what you're willing like, to spill. Talk about a flex slash minor, you know, major drop that you just wanted to tease in there. Like, whoa, rewind, back up, stop, start. <laughs> we can talk about that at the re retrospective because <laughs> oh, okay. we have a lot of stuff to get through. But uh, yes, I really liked your description of, of this garden analogy. Does Lily's Festering, the title of this book, have anything to do with Matt's lack of organization with Pie to Jack? No. You're, you're not a Lily. <laughs> you're a base weed. A base weed. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a uh, there's actually a, a Lewis essay called mm -hmm. Lilies That Fester. Oh, and you can oh Lilies That Fester. <laughs> Hang on. Published in 20th century. You should leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's actually a, a Lewis essay called Lilies That Fester. So that may be worth, uh, worth looking up as well. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So good. Our underachieving David. Yeah, really, he has a baby and he's still going to write a book. He's an impressive human being, machine. I have to have something to dedicate to my son. Well done. <laughs> but yeah, I love that description that you gave of the garden analogy. Gardens are beautiful, but they need work. They unfortunately don't weed or prune themselves. Now that I live in the Midwest, I wish my lawn would mow itself. <laughs> But they don't. And so what you need is a gardener. Uh, And as you point out, the gardener's contribution, it's far smaller and less impressive than what he's working with. Lewis says that at the end of the day, he realizes he's just encouraged in one place and discouraged somewhere else, and that there are powers and beauties that are from a different and more powerful source. And so in the same way that a gardener benefits from a gardener, the natural loves benefit from decency and common sense. And if even in the Garden of Eden... God assigned a gardener, yeah, how much more tending does a fallen human soul need? Hmm. But I had another question. Uh, Lewis warns us not to do this gardening in the spirit of prigs and stoics. What does he mean? Yeah, he goes on to say, while we hack and prune, we know very well that we are that what we are hacking and pruning is big with a splendor and vitality which our rational will could never of itself have supplied. To liberate that splendor, to let it become fully what it is trying to be, to have tall trees instead of scrubby tangles and sweet apples instead of crab apples is part of our purpose. And so to allow the natural loves to have their head, there certainly is a splendor to them, but they are very, very almost certain to go wrong. But if we were to prune, to hack, to discipline, not as prigs, um, what does it say? Not as prigs and stoics. Mm-hmm. Not because we're afraid of the loves, but to train the loves to do what best they can do is to help them happen. So when I choose amongst those many companions that I can make, whom I can make into my friends, and when I are, am very deliberate with my time with my chosen friends and very purposeful about taking those actions that will continue to grow friendship, that will reveal a splendor that... Um, that won't be there unless I actually take the time and say yes to this and no to no to other things. It's the practice of virtue. And I think that's what Lewis is getting here. Not to jump ahead at all, but I believe as we're going to talk about in the St. Augustine part, that more or less answers here of how it's very easy to think that the, the three loves, the three natural loves, to almost like tame them because they can be hurtful. They can, you can get hurt, wounded. They're, they're messy. You don't want to be vulnerable, things like that. And so Stoics might say, I just want to renounce myself to those loves because I'd I'd rather put my, my happiness in something else or in my own self. And in this case, it's like, we got to do the pruning and the gardening so those can flourish at their finest, which does mean potentially getting hurt. Well, and nothing that has not died will not be raised. Mm. And so unless we put to natural death and allow resurrection to take place, we can't have those things in heaven that we really want. David, you were going to say. I'm just loving this. I think we're firing all cylinders. I think this is going to be a good episode. (laughs) (laughs) But I must necessarily push us on to the next section. (laughs) Thank you for keeping us out of the scrubby tangles as time (laughs) flies away. Well, in this next section, Lewis says that it's now finally time to address the issue which he's been avoiding, how natural loves can be rivals to the love of God. But he first of all explains why he's delayed addressing this question, and he gives two reasons. 
The first reason he delayed in talking about this issue is that he doesn't think it's where most of us need to begin. It's not our most pressing problem. He writes, For most of us, the true rivalry lies between the self and the human other, not between the human other and God. What does he mean by this, and why is he concerned that if we try and solve the problem of the latter, rivalry with God, when our issue is the former, rivalry with humans? Well, there's that key word, other, right? And so love is where we go out of ourselves towards the other, right? Um, Take a drink with that, Um, (laughs) although I'm not planning to mention the four loves. Um, It's generally a rivalry between my wanting to do what's good for me and wanting to do what's good for the other. And that's where most of the daily struggles, I believe, are. I rarely have to go, oh, do I need to rip away time from prayer so that I can spend more time generously loving my wife or my friends or or my my family? Um, I'm not anything like that kind of saintly. Uh, so usually the big fight, I think Lewis is asserting, is the fight between self and loving anything outside of the self. So I think <laughs> that it's pride. It's the great sin, uh, as, as mere Christianity says. So I think that's kind of what he's getting towards. Later, as I get better at it, I may have to say, oh, I need to spend less time with my friends so I can spend more time with God. But normally the problem is I need to spend less time on myself on any, you know, in order to indulge in any of the other loves. And I was just going to use the word justification. I mean, how if, if we're not very good at loving our neighbor, loving the stranger, loving the homeless, loving our family members, loving our spouse, and then all of a sudden we like start coming to Christianity and realizing, oh, we need to love God more. It, it honestly creates an excuse or justification that we don't need to do those other things. Or um, like, oh, I need to spend more time in prayer. It's like, no, you need to be a better father. Let's be honest. Or no, you need to be a better husband. Or you need to spend some time helping the homeless and the most vulnerable. And that is the way you are loving God better. Uh, but I think it's easy to confuse those. Yeah, it's just an easy justification to be horrible. And I think this mistake of thinking that we are more spiritual than we are goes a long way to explaining an awful lot of terrible Christian behavior. Uh, it explains every nasty church secretary you've ever met. It explains the Pharisees. Uh, in particular, when I was reading this, I was thinking of the Corban rule, which we read about in the New Testament, where Jesus criticizes those who declare all of their money, all of their wealth, Corban, which means it's dedicated to God, at the expense of looking after their mother and their father, which is one of the Ten Commandments. Well, on the other hand, Lewis or, uh, Jesus also says, um, unless you hate your father and mother, uh, you cannot come after me. And so actually this morning during Bible study, I do an online Bible study with some guys in Florida. And uh, this morning I had the chance to look up the Greek word for hate. And it means to esteem less Ah. or to love less. I'm going to ask you to put a pin in that because we're going to be dealing with that next episode. (laughs) Because Lewis speaks specifically about Jesus' command to hate mother and father. And what does that mean? So I want you to write down the Greek. (laughs) I want you to pronounce it (laughs) flawlessly for us, but we will (laughs) get to that next time. All right. Well, love God as much as you can, um, and and everything else take let everything else take its proper place. How about that for now? I like it. So the first reason he delayed addressing this question is he thinks this isn't where our chief problem lies. This is not our main difficulty: loving uh, God more than loving other people more than God. We're just more selfish. We love ourselves more than we love other people. But what's the second reason? 
He says that the claim to divinity which our loves so easily make can be refuted without going so far. The loves prove that they are untrustworthy to take the place of God by the fact that they cannot even remain themselves and do what they promise without God's help. What do you make of this? I'm not sure I'm right on this, but I think there's some truth in what I'm about to say, and hopefully you guys can correct me and come to it. This was, this was slightly confusing, if I'm going to be honest. But what I, how I thought about this is calling it a rivalry isn't exactly accurate because there is really only a rivalry that happens or a conflict that happens when they are in unison, interestingly enough. Like when the natural love is infused with the divine, only then is the natural love actually at its most beautiful. And only then is it potentially to be confused with the divine. Like if there is no natural love infused with the divine, that natural love is going to become demonic and therefore not going to be confused with the divine. I mean, a demonic love is not going to be confused with the divine. So I kind of thought it was sort of a paradox. I think he used the word paradox. So that's how I thought about it, that the rivalry doesn't exactly exist because you can't have the rivalry without the divine in the first place. Well, and I also find an echo from your Christianity where Lewis says, now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why there is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing, right? And so the natural loves have to resolve into divine love because that's what they were created. They were created to run on God um, and run on the fuel of God's love, just like we were created to, to run on God. The natural loves only take their proper place when they look towards the one that, that supports and supplies them. And when they don't, that's when they become corrupted and we see all of the horribleness of people like Mrs. Fidget. And I think that's the point that he's trying to make, that the limits of natural love can be seen without having to appeal to a higher love. The analogy he gives is great. He gives the example of a regional king who claims that he's the emperor. But you don't even really need to seriously entertain that idea when it's clear that this man can't even retain his regional rule without the real emperor's support. And so in the same way, the natural loves will fail to fulfill their grander claims unless they are aided by something else. And he actually uses this analogy as a model to describe the interaction between the natural loves and divine loves. He says, For when God rules the human heart, though he may sometimes have to remove certain of its native authorities altogether, he often continues others in their offices, and by subjecting their authority to his, gives it for the first time a firm basis. And this is where he quotes Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's a quotation we've mentioned quite a few times over the course of this season. Andrew, what is this quotation and what does Lewis think is wrong with it? Well, the uh, wonderful transcendentalist writer uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson um, says, when the half-gods go, the gods arrive. This is, of course, from his poem, Give All to Love, which I wouldn't know unless David had hunted it down and looked it up in the notes. <laughs> But Lewis's correction is when God arrives, and only then, the half-gods can remain. 
God is the gravitational center of our entire existence, and to try to live outside of God is to just have this lopsided orbit that sooner or later will swing off into, e- into eternity um, going, going the wrong way. And so it's only when the source of all love is at the center of our lives that the other loves can kind of take their places around him, around the throne of divine love. And that's part of why we see in our culture, it's Lewis's analogy again of the three parts of morality right? Where we don't worry about whether or not somebody's steering system is going well. We just worry about them crashing into each other. But how can people avoid crashing into each other unless we adjust their steering steering system? In this analogy, if I have God at the handle of my rudder, I will then guide my ship as I should guide it. And not only will I not run into anybody else, I I will also navigate well to the place that I'm going to. It's only once God shows up that the other loves have any idea what to do once the kind of intoxication of those loves, the emotion, the temporary emotion of them wears off. Once the, the giddy of you know romantic love and sexual expression and all of that wears off, people have to get down to the bare bones business of just loving because they decided to. You know, I think often of Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, two unarguably beautiful people who got divorced. Well, at some point, whatever attraction was working with, with them stopped working, evidently, um, and it will happen to anybody, no matter how gorgeous or not that you are. Once the natural loves cease chugging along on their own steam, they need something else, someone else to support them and to, uh, and to refresh them. And that's, I think, what Lewis is trying to get at here. I knew when you invited me on, you were hoping for more Brad Pitt analogies, weren't you? (laughs) (laughs) So the natural loves need to be kept in their place and not complete with God. There is one way of ensuring this doesn't happen, ensuring that there's no competition with the love of God, but it's a way that Lewis says he has to reject. And he says he does this with trembling, quote, for it met me in the pages of a great saint and a great thinker to whom my own glad debts are incalculable. And the person he's referring to here is St. Augustine of Hippo, the 4th and 5th century bishop and early church father. Uh, He's known for the Confessions and the City of God. Those are his two primary works that people might have read. Do you know what I love about that? I've never read, obviously, actually, I have read this statement before years ago, but forgot about it. I love the way God works. So you know how Lewis is the thing that brought me back to Christianity and really kicked off my journey and why I'm so indebted to him. I knew that Chesterton influenced him a lot. So naturally, I take a Chesterton course at Notre Dame. So the senior year, I took a Lewis course. I took a Chesterton course. I also took a St. Augustine course, not because of Lewis. And now reading this right now, I just kind of chuckle on the inside with God's divine providence because I had no idea that Augustine influenced in incalculable debts Lewis. And so I just I love how in one semester I took two great thinkers that really influenced Lewis's life after he did mine. I love how God works in those little ways. Well, and you know, that's a, it's similar to the story of our friend Joseph Pierce, who has been on with us before when he was in prison for publishing racist materials in England. Um, he read Chesterton 
And then he read Surprised by Joy, and because he found so many references to Chesterton, who he already loved, he figured that Lewis must be okay. And so uh, you're following you're following a pretty safe path. And yeah, Augustine wrote enormously and is endlessly influential. We were just talking about him uh, not an hour ago in one of my classes. So yeah, and I love that Lewis acknowledges the debts and also that Lewis points beyond himself as an author and opens the door to so many other authors. I could probably fa- safely say that 75 to 80% of my other my education comes from just trying to follow up what Lewis already read and thought about. Mm-hmm. I would definitely second that. And we'll eventually discuss whether or not Lewis's criticism here is valid, but I do think it's worth seeing how respectfully he argues, something which is a lesson for us all, particularly anyone that's online. Now, Lewis refers to Book 4 of the Confessions, where Augustine describes the desolation he felt following the death of his friend Nebridius. And from this, Lewis says that Augustine draws the moral that one should not give one's heart to anything but God. And Lewis says this kind of makes sense. He says, do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. And this quotation you will see so often posted in isolation on the internet with Lewis's name next to it. And it's misleading because he actually rejects this. He says, yeah, sure. I'm the sort of man who's a safety first creature. I naturally respond very positively to warnings of this kind. But he says, my conscience has to reject it because it seems a thousand miles away from Christ. And he's sure that Christ's teaching was never meant to confirm his, as he says, congenital preference for safe investments and limited liabilities. (laughs) As a finance person, I love that. (laughs) But he wonders, who could possibly begin to love God on the grounds that he's simply more reliable and that loving God is calculated to produce the minimum amount of pain? In the last chapter, when we're looking at Eros, Lewis said that Lawless Eros prefers the beloved to happiness. And here Lewis says that that is closer to love himself than this weird accountancy-based, liability-based assessment of the love of God. Mm-hmm. And Lewis attributes Augustine's teaching not to his Christianity, but to, he describes it as a hangover from his high-minded pagan philosophies. Uh, he says it's closer to Stoic apathy or Neoplatonic mysticism than to charity. And he gives a defense as to why he thinks he's wrong. What biblical evidence does Lewis give in an attempt to try and show that Augustine was wrong? You know, Lewis called himself a safety first man. I think these are in the, re- in the, in the recordings. He says he preferred guilt-edged securities. Matt, you'll like that. Um, he also said as a child, he, although he preferred chocolate- By the way, guilt, so people know, is doesn't mean like guilty. Guilt like gold, yes. gold-edged securities, uh, yes. Yeah. Tell uh, us about toffees. At the, <laughs> as a schoolboy, he said, uh, although I preferred um, chocolate, I, I always bought toffee because they lasted longer. And this may have something to do with his mother's death and the other deaths early in his life. Um, but and, and part of that is, I think, uh, I don't think he could have written this passage until uh, Joy Davidman uh, called him my great Antarctica, my newfound land of woman-killing frost. I think she reached behind the iceberg of Lewis, who was frozen in, to some degree, his fear of emotion. Mm -hmm. Uh, His father was too emotional in his grief. 
um, and he had been touched by by grief. And so um, I think that the four loves is him kind of coming to terms, or at least beginning to come to terms with the idea of of emotion. And he draws this. Um, he says, we follow one who wept over Jerusalem and at the grave of Lazarus, and loving all, yet had one disciple whom in a special sense he loved. You know, Jesus wept, even though he knew that five minutes later, Lazarus would come forth from the grave. And so in following Christ, Lewis has to abandon his uh, self-preservation. And so do we. Yeah, he appeals to Jesus. And he also appeals to St. Paul. And he gives the example that we read about in his epistle to the Philippians, because the church in Philippi had sent him a gift uh, at the hand of one of their own called Epaphroditus. And we read in Paul's epistle that Epaphroditus became very sick and nearly died. And Lewis says that St. Paul doesn't anywhere suggest that if Epaphroditus had died, that St. Paul shouldn't have suffered, wept because of this death. And Lewis just doesn't think that the love of God is meant to keep us free from heartbreak. And he doesn't think that's going to happen. And he notes that Christ loved the Father, but yet he cried, why hast thou forsaken me? And I'd also add that Jesus told the people that wanted to follow him that if they did want to do that, they needed to take up their crosses daily. And here we come to my favorite section of this entire book. And our quote of the week is buried in here. And I love this section so much, I'm just going to read all of it. Good. I want uh, Before David reads this, Andrew, I want you to know that if there's ever a very long section you want to read, you can say, I love this so much, it's my favorite section in the book, and then David can't do anything. <laughs> I'm okay well, no, I'll just make sure that it's covered in the, in the notes. Um, <laughs> and we know that Andrew likes reading the long sections in the quote of the week and creating issues for our audio engineer, trying to oh. add, extend the music longer. <laughs> I did. I did well this time, didn't <laughs> you I? Did not? wonderfully, Andrew. So I chopped it down, but I was praying we'd get it all. Yeah. <laughs> so Andrew, I was so I was slightly chuckling because I had the Google Drive or the Google Doc up uh, ten minutes before the episode, and I saw you in there editing the quote of the week, and I almost sent you a text saying, "This is probably the one quote of the week you don't have to edit down because it's David's favorite quote in the entire book. He'll probably let you get away with the entire paragraph." Well, I've come to to trust the Batesian uh, flexibility in order to, uh, uh, to to quote the whole of the text during the course of the interview. But I I love our engineer and would do anything to uh, to make Taylor's life easier. Well, I'll tell you what, let's experience a little bit of Batesian grace. Andrew, <laughs> will you please it. read the section that is in the notes? Even if it were granted that insurances against heartbreak were our highest wisdom, does God Himself offer them? Apparently not. Christ comes at last to say, Why hast thou forsaken me? There is no escape along the lines St. Augustine suggests, nor any other lines. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. 
It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. That was incredible, Andrew. Mm. I could have read it better. <laughs> Go for it. I, I, Do it. <laughs> I full heartedly disagree. That was phenomenal, Andrew. Well done, my friend. David, you would have done a beautiful job, but that was so good. Well, there's a couple of things to mention here. Guys, grab your scotch. Ooh, I got it. I finished my first glass. When, I'm on my second glass right now, so take it easy <laughs> on me, Andrew. <laughs> when Orwal hides herself away and queens herself, she tucks herself away. She is creating this casket, this safe, dark, motionless, airless casket, and she becomes unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. <laughs> but still... Even like the and like the dwarfs, she will not be taken in, but somehow love reaches her. I would also recommend, and I put the uh, the, the link in the chat, and maybe we can include it somewhere in the show notes. Uh, Phil Keggy did a marvelous song where he quotes this very passage in a song called Chalice, and it's this, this stunning song about the grace of God and what love can do, and uh, and and in redeeming. That, uh, that safety that we try to make of our own hearts. And when we get to the retrospective, I will absolutely read a section out of the Confessions where St. Augustine speaks about how God broke into his life. Because I, I now hear it anywhere wherever Lewis is talking about love. Hmm. Well, the whole time you were reading that, Andrew, I was just thinking about a recent conversation with my mother where she told me my greatest struggle in life is lack of vulnerability. I said, mm. thanks, Mom. I appreciate that. <laughs> the word vulnerability uh, means, it comes from the Latin word vulnere, which means wound. And so vulnerability is the ability to be wounded. And insofar as you want to pursue this as a virtue as well, um, it's to follow the path of Christ. It's fo the, follow the one who's by his stripes, uh, by whose stripes we are healed. Because he came vulnerable as a little baby in a manger and vulnerable in his life and then finally woundable. And it's by those very wounds that we are healed in the same way. And I say this at 56 years with my full share of grace and brokenness behind me. In that same way, the woundedness that we experience, especially in the, for, in, in the loves, that woundedness offered to God will turn into these places where light can breathe through. Mm. It can become luminous and gold-edged. Uh, gold and those wounds that we offer to Christ not only fill up the sufferings of Christ and are purposeful, but they will be the places where the jewels of our lives mm. um, uh, take their place when we see them by heaven. So I'm not saying go out and get hurt and look to get hurt. But when you face these pains, continue to be vulnerable because he too was naked and beaten and bruised on our behalf. And those wounds are the stripes that healed us. And St. Augustine said that in heaven, the wounds of the martyrs are glorified. Holy cow, guys. All right. Yes. I, I, I mean, that was my, that was my one too. That was my one. 
Here's my two. <laughs> we shall draw nearer to God, not by trying to avoid sufferings inherent in all our loves, but by accepting them and offering them to him. Throwing away all defensive armor. If our hearts need to be broken, and if he chooses this as the way in which they should break, so be it. Wow. Mm-hmm. I was I was making a joke about my mother's comment. I thought you guys would laugh. I didn't expect that most incredible monologue, Andrew, I think I've ever heard from you in my life. <laughs> that, honestly, that was remarkable. I am Every single time I'm going to think of the word vulnerable, and I hope the listeners realize what they just heard, I'm going to think of the willingness to be wounded. And I think back to, and I'm glad you you prefaced it at the end, and David had sent me a text a couple days ago. I responded to like half of his text, but he sent me one on, uh, I think, David, if I was reading your mind correctly, after the maybe the conversation with Matt and I when we were talking about that calculated vulnerability. And there's... There, there's there's like the willingness to be wounded doesn't mean allowing yourself to be wounded by everyone. There's 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 a calculatedness to it. There's understanding the right circumstances, but you do need to be willing to be wounded to some degree. And I, I love that. I've never heard that, Andrew, in my life, by the way. So you mm. just probably changed the way I think about that word forever. And Brene Brown has already made me think about vulnerability differently. So mm. thank you for that. There's a power in that. And it's part of the the Sermon on the Mount. It's part of turning the other cheek to get slapped again or to have your coat taken and your cloak as well. You know, the the practical application for me for many years was as a high school teacher when I suspected a student was cheating or I knew they were cheating but couldn't prove it. And I could I would call them in and say, I think that you know, by offering you this extension or by accepting this excuse for why your homework isn't done or whatever, I said, I don't necessarily believe you, but I am willing to let myself be taken advantage of mm. by you because that's what grace does. Even though I'm 40 years older than you and smarter than you by a foot and a half, <laughs> I am willing to let myself be taken advantage of because that's the way of the cross, right? It's Mm. the way of falling down and dying, but that's the only way to get out of this world alive. Probably my greatest weakness is I will never let myself be taken advantage of. And that is a bad thing. I don't say that with pride. (laughs) I I protect (laughs) myself. Wait till you have kids. (laughs) I know. Oof. Yeah. It's probably why I'm still single. Well, and I'm not, I'm not advocating, um, I'm not advocating codependency. I'm not advocating bad (laughs) self-care. I'm not advocating, uh, letting yourself become a doormat, you know, certainly please don't hear that. But there are times where we have to take our pride in hand and just set it aside and let it be mortified and allow people the possibility of wounding us so that Christ can heal those wounds and raise everything from the dead. Nothing that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Mm. Now, next week, we're going to look a little bit more into where Andrew wants to run off and talk about loving and hating and what does it mean to have inordinate love. But that's next week. So just to wrap up today's episode, we haven't actually answered the question, was Lewis right? Is this actually what Augustine was saying? And there are some reasons to think that he actually misunderstands Augustine. For a start, he actually mixes up a couple of incidents in the Confessions. But rather than going into that now, if you would like to learn more about this, go and look at Season 3, Episode 30, where I interviewed Dr. Jason Lepoyavi, and we discuss this disagreement with St. Augustine. And in the show notes, I'll also put a link to a video and a paper which he wrote on this subject. And also, this week I should be recording a Skype session with a teacher from Thomas Aquinas College 
uh, who also wrote a paper about this dispute between Lewis and Augustine. But that is all in the future, and I hear the sound of the last call from the landlord. He's telling us that we don't have to go home, but we can't stay here. I want to clarify that a landlord in England means a pub keeper. Um, a landlord here means somebody who's charging you rent. <laughs> and so uh, the last call from the landlord uh, is, is, is simply saying, please, can I pour you another pint of beer before we have to go? <laughs> yes. The governor is telling us that we've got to get out. And we'd just like <laughs> to thank you all for your support, particularly our top tier Patreon supporters, Thomas, Deborah, Anony Mouse, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. So, please join us next time. When we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. 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 Ooh, that was loud. Well done, Andrew. We got a good one today. That's just representative of a good episode. <laughs>